All right. Uh, next week we'll be in chapter six and seven. Um, and so if you kind of want to mark where to read ahead, but we're going to start this, we'll be in Corinthians, the first and second Corinthians, probably for most of the rest of the summer. And we've been talking about, even, even through this section when we were in, the, in that kind of obscure part of the Old Testament, we were talking about setting priorities for your life. So most of these, uh, most of these lessons are going to have as, um, and Sally, keep me straight, you know, I need a school teacher handy. Um, um, most of these lessons are going to have as kind of the, the subject a verb. This one is live or living as a community of believers. We're going to talk today about living together in unity and how important that is. Uh, so um, we'll have a different kind of verb to cover uh, week after week. Now, I want you to go, though, now that you've hopefully found 1 Corinthians, I want you to flip through Corinthians, both letters, okay, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, and I want us to read together the very last word, the very last verse that Paul writes to the Corinthian church, okay? It's going to be 2 Corinthians, and I forgot what the reference is. I'm going to find it as you find it, okay? The very last verse in 2 Corinthians, okay? 2 Corinthians 13, 14. I thought it was chapter 13, but I didn't want to say, go to chapter 15, and then say, and you would laugh at me. So, yeah. 13, 14, the last one. Sally, you mind to read it? What does it sound like he's interested in? Uh, he, he just kind of wants to surround them with all these good things. Grace, love, um, um, the three verbs there, the, great, uh, the, the three kind of uh, words there, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. It, he just wants to kind of surround everybody. Now, doesn't this sound kind of idyllic? If we had that, if we all had that in equal measure, wouldn't life just be kind of wonderful? living in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit with the love of God and the grace of God to surround us. But the truth is, we're all kind of human, right? Now, by the way, there's another implication here. If you find anybody uh, in your life, occasionally will have this. There's several references. The Bible does not use the word trinity in it, okay? That's, that's an, an extra biblical theological word. But this is one of those verses, by the way, where if you encounter somebody who says, well, the Bible doesn't really teach the Trinity, uh, this is one of those places where it would say, I beg to differ with you. You notice Paul references Father, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all in the same verse. Okay? Another place for that, uh, and you're getting a theology lesson that you didn't pay for, so sorry. Another place would be with Jesus' baptism. The Son of God is there. The Holy Spirit lights on him in the, like the presence of a dove. And the Father says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. So, I mean, the Trinity shows up in a lot of places. It's just not, that word is not used. So, don't let anybody kind of argue you out of that really important piece of doctrine. Now, let's talk a little bit about this situation. We have got to make unity uh, as, as part of the body of Christ We've got to make unity a priority. It's not going to just happen. We often idealize the first century church. Now, I'm not taking anything away from, from Marty's teaching because I love it just like you do. Uh, Marty will often reference uh, Acts 2 and Acts 4 and say this is the church we want to model after, and he's absolutely right. But what you, you and I don't need to lapse into 
is the naivete that all the churches in the first century were just absolutely perfect. Because the truth is, the church in Corinth was goofed up. It's so much so that Paul writes how many chapters to them in rapid fire to kind of correct a bunch of junk that's going on there, including this infighting thing that we're going to deal with today. Now, let me give you just a little bit of background here. Um, Paul goes on three missionary journeys in his life to, to launch churches. And in the second one, he goes back to check on churches that he planted in the first one. And while he's on that second journey, uh, and you can read about that in Acts 15, um, God, in, in kind of a vision or a dream, influences Paul's itinerary, and he says, I want you to go over to what is then known as Macedonia. You can still read that word in some places. Um, I was watching a, a World War II documentary the other day, and, uh, and I was looking for, I was trying to compare the world of the 1940s and the world of today, and I'm looking at probably a 1960s globe in my study, and it's confusing as all get out. You know, the lines are just all goofed up now. But um, um, so Paul is going to go over to Macedonia, to a Greek area of the, of, of the world, and he's going to arrive in the city of Corinth in about A.D. 52. Now, isn't it interesting that we know when he got there? We can date it by some of the other things that's happening in his writing. So in about 52 A.D., Jesus has been gone from the planet how long? Do the math for me. A.D. 52 and 33, about 19 years, okay? He's been gone a while. The message is catching on like wildfire of the resurrection of Christ. And Paul has planted a church in Corinth in, in 52 um, he plants one, and he spends 18 months right there before he moves on. Now, by the time he gets to his next stop, he's already hearing how goofed up the church is, and he begins to write back to them to kind of straighten some of these things out. So that's kind of what we're dealing with um, in the writing to the Corinthians, which is where we'll be. Now, the Bible tells us in Acts 18 that the church in Corinth had a synagogue, what you probably need to know as you're reading the book of Acts and reading Paul's other writings is that Paul's kind of SOP, all right, where's Gene Duck? What's SOP, Gene? What would you say? Okay. <laughs> Where'd that come from? Huh? Yeah. You talk to a guy that used to fly a B-52 and you figure he knows what he's talking about. So, okay. All right. Okay, how did I not know that? I mean, you just went way up, in my opinion, okay? You flew, flew low, okay? and you're still flying low, Howard. Well, the idea here is his standard operating procedure was he would go into a new city, and he would find a synagogue there. Now, any larger city is going to have a synagogue in it in the first century. And he would align with the synagogue... And because he was a teacher, because he had studied under Gamaliel, you can read about that in Acts 5, they would always ask Paul to teach. Well, now, this was a setup, all right? He's in the synagogue with people who believe in God, but if they've heard anything about Jesus, it's not positive. And here's a guy who's given his life to telling the resurrection story because he met Jesus, you remember, on the way to Damascus. And it changed his life. 
So he begins in the synagogue and he begins to reason with them uh, every Saturday, every Sabbath about uh, the truths of, of uh, the gospel. And he, he, he's so versed in the Old Testament that he can take them through that and connect the dots between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And he leads several people to faith in Corinth who were Jewish believers to start with, but there are also Greeks in that environment too. And so eventually he gets in a little bit of trouble as he does in most places where he lands. The synagogue is no longer, um, it's kind of a hostile environment. He plants a church and now some of these new Jewish believers have helped him start it. Some other Greeks who didn't know anything about the Bible, anything about the Old Testament scriptures are also there that he led to faith. It's just a wonderful plan and he did that in city after city after city after city until uh, the end of his life. Okay, so that's kind of where we are. He finds here um, in this mixed congregation he writes two letters while he's on his third journey and the four or so years that lapsed between his time with them and the time of the first letter back saw all kinds of ungodly trends develop and he's just got to go after that. So the first one we're going to kind of deal with is this issue of um, unity. Bob, are you back there? Would you read verse 10 through 12 from the first chapter? Okay, now I'm going to take you back to that ending of 2 Corinthians chapter 13 where we were a minute ago. And I'm going to look at verse 10. Here is Paul's attitude as he writes. I, I like this a lot. This is uh, 2 Corinthians 13.10. For this reason I'm writing these things while absent. So that when I'm present, I don't need to use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not tearing down. You know, he's going to have to deal with some pretty difficult stuff, but... But I don't want you to think that Paul is just picky and critical. This is just stuff that has to be taken care of. And, and as we talk through it, you'll understand why. But he writes to them so that when he's with them, he can just love on them and help them understand. He really, really loves these people, even though their fellowship has gotten kind of goofed up. Okay, now, uh, Bob reads to us that... We, what, what he's going to make here is going to begin by making, after kind of an introduction, first nine or so verses in, in Corinthians, he's going to make an appeal. What's he appealing for? Now, he's appealing for, and here's this, this um, uh, really important word in this study. He's going to appeal for unity. All right? Going to appeal for unity, that they, that they be united. There's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, as long as there's infighting and bickering among them, there will be no peace in, in the church. All right? You been there? You know? I, I kind of been there. Yeah. Um, and I'm, isn't that what's so refreshing about this place? We just don't have time for it. You know, we're out there tying a knot in the devil's tail. We don't have time to fight with each other. Um, so he writes to them because... The church lacks 
If they lack unity, they're going to lack peace. And then secondly, and this is really, really important for you and I to catch, and probably Paul's as concerned about this as anything, is that their witness or their influence in the community is really becoming nil. Because when they're in the community, and maybe somebody does share the message of Christ, somebody else is likely to say, oh, you mean that church is over there fighting? You're part of that church that's over there fighting. So your leader teaches you, you get the, it's just a major disconnect. So as he begins to teach them about this and write to them about this, he loves them, but he really wants this unity to be dealt with. We need to live as a community of believers, he says. There has developed, verse 11, there's developed kind of a, uh, a contentious spirit. Good luck spelling that word. Kind of a contentious spirit in the church that Paul had planted. And it's a real disappointment to him. And he mentions this lady named Chloe. Now, I think it's interesting. Um, by the way, I love that name. That's a pretty name. Uh, she is mentioned. They don't typically mention a woman in the Bible without mentioning a husband. So what can we probably assume? That Chloe's probably a widow. Uh, or at least her husband is not a believer, not a part of the church, and she has become an influential part of the church. But she's reporting, along with others, that, man, this has just become contentious. Um, and, and it's that deal where you just kind of hate to show up, even though you know you should, because everybody's kind of fighting. Now, if you remember what Paul, what um, Bob read a few minutes ago, they have, you think... You think our system is goofed up? Um, uh, Larry, I read your stuff about the two, that you have a great deal of interest in the two-party system in Oklahoma. And it's almost become a three-party system here. Um, um, what, what I'm recognizing is in this one, there was at least a four-party system. How goofed up is that? Okay. And let me, let's kind of take it apart here a little bit. So there have four factions within the church. There's been kind of this spirit of partisanship that has developed. Okay, so you got those who, um, those who um, were led to Christ, led to faith by Paul. So you can put his name in the first line, um, and you can go back to. Let's go real quickly back left, just a little ways to Acts 18, and we can read about where Paul planted this little church. Acts 18.11. He's in Greece and in Macedonia. He's at Corinth. I'm going to back up to verse 9 because it's really important. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Don't be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and don't be silent, for I'm with you. And no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So that's when he was in Corinth doing this wonderful work that he did. Now, there are some who came to Christ during his 18-month stay at Corinth. So there's a party of believers among these four different parties. There's a party who will say, well, you know, I was led to Christ by Paul. Okay, now, what you need to envision. Have you noticed the mania that USA Soccer has? What is that deal? I mean, I walk into our IT department, and they're watching, and I'm saying, well, I see you've got the paint drying channel on again. You know, one goal in 40, 50, 80 minutes, and I'm thinking, okay, uh, you know, I watch Oklahoma football. This is a way different deal. But if I'm noticing as I'm out in the community, people are wearing jerseys, and, you know, there's got, people got a Brazil jersey, or they got a uh, Ecuador, you know, whatever. 
or hopefully a few USA jerseys out there, but what, what you got to envision here is that these people, when they came to church, were wearing different jerseys. So there's a, there's a group of them that have got a big P on their, on their shirt. And that we know that's the Paul faction. They all sit over there on the left side together. Okay. Now, there is a second group of jerseys, all right, and they're going to have a big A. And they, they were led to Christ or taught or really have, have, been, have responded to the teaching of Apollos. Apollos. Now, he was a Greek uh, as his name would indicate, and he was a very capable teacher who really followed up in a strong way, in a healthy way, to Paul's ministry. But there were some who were led to Christ by Apollos and certainly taught by him and discipled by him who were going to have an A on their jersey and it's going to say, you know, I'm really not a Pauline guy, I'm an, I'm an Apollos guy. Now, it's interesting because the P jerseys were all taken. Okay, because the P jerseys were all taken, there's a third group that's going to wear a C on their jersey. All right. But they're really followers of Peter. Okay, now since the Paul jerseys had the P on them, they, so they decided to use uh, an older, much more uh, uh, cool, kind of retro name for Peter, and they call him Cephas. Simon Peter, those who we're talking about. And these guys are interesting because the church um, was really mobile in these days. They've become mobile. There's a lot of, there's a lot of dispersion out of Jerusalem because of because of a persecution there. So there are people that literally were in Peter's church in Jerusalem. And don't you know, these were a fun group. Well, you know, I've got a P. I don't have a P on my jersey. I've got a C. Because I followed not Peter. We don't call him Peter. We call him Cephas. We knew him really well. You know, he, I mean, Okay. So that's the group. Now, uh, Maydeen and I were talking before, before church. I buried a woman years ago in Muskogee who um, was led to Christ by W.A. Criswell when he was pastor of First Baptist Church in Muskogee. Now, if you don't know that name, Criswell went from Muskogee to Dallas and, and launched a megachurch mega in Dallas before there were megachurches. 20,000 members in its heyday. He's kind of one of my heroes. I read a lot of his stuff. But can you imagine what it was like for, this, for Ruby, this little lady that I was eulogizing on that particular day? Can you imagine what every other pastor she ever had after that? Well, I'm kind of, you know, I was baptized by W.A. Criswell, so I'm kind of in. She had a C on her jersey too, right? Okay, so then there's, there's a fourth group, all right? And these are really interesting people because the C on their jersey is like a really major capital C. But we just follow Christ. Now, can you imagine how fun those people were? You know, uh, it's, there's nothing wrong with following Christ. In fact, that's what we're all trying to do. But it's kind of puzzling here. This was a group that just had some kind of super spiritual approach to life. And they were sitting kind of off on their own saying, well, you know, if you were as cool as I was, you would understand this. Okay, now, can you imagine a worse environment to try to grow in? That's what's ha happening, Bob. Yeah. I was raised a pedestrian. My mother walked me to church. Um, yeah. 
sorry. I actually, you know, many of us went to the Church of the United Ignorant Brethren, but okay, never mind. Um, uh, can you imagine? We do try to label ourselves, don't we? Uh, one of the early on here, when when there were and there's still hundreds of people coming through the pastor's class as new members. But I remember in one of these in, in the old church in the old chapel, it was just teeming with people. One Wednesday night, we had probably 125 people in there, brand new to the church. The church was only you know 800 or 1,000 at that point, and here's you know 10 percent of, of the brand new people, and they begin to identify themselves. In those days, we could do that, uh, uh, kind of how they got here and. And uh, um, one guy stood up in the back of the room and said, well, I'm a recovering Methodist, you know. <laughs> and, uh, nothing to do with Methodists, Jeff. I didn't mean that towards Methodists. Larry, you came from a Methodist church. But isn't it interesting that we found a place where the labels, Bob, don't matter as much. I, and by the way, the group, Morgan, that we're a part of, when it's distilled down to its essence message, that's who we are. A group who doesn't really care about labels. Or we shouldn't. Okay, but they did. And Paul's going to go after it. Now, let's go to verse 13 and read um, about how, what he has to say to them. Somebody go to verse 13 and read down through 17. beautiful teaching here, but he begins verse 13 by asking three rhetorical questions, rapid fire. Now, we've used that term before. What does a rhetorical question mean? It means in asking the question, the answer is implied, and the answer in this one that's implied to every one of them is no. So we can go back and read verse 13. Um, has Christ been divided? No. Paul was not crucified for you, was he? No. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. The answer is no to all of those questions. Uh, it's rhetorical. Paul's point here is it doesn't matter. In fact, he kind of goes into, in verse 14, he goes into, um, it, it, it's almost like he remembers some other things as he's talking. I like this. He's very, very human in this moment, even though this is inspired scripture. He says, you know, I only baptized these two fellows. Well, and then there was a time when I baptized these other people. But the, the point is, in verse 14, 15, and 16, is that the point is that it doesn't really matter who was baptized by his own hands. I'm going to ask you a trick question. I want you to think about it before you answer it. Okay, Mark, Mark's right with me. You're gonna, you're, I can tell you're going drill, to drill down on this. If it was important to the original church, okay, the 12 disciples and the 500 or so that were, that were believers at the time of the resurrection, if it was important for all of those people to have been baptized by Jesus in order to be in the church, how many of them would there have been? What would you say? Did you listen to this? My new theologian over here. Ellie, you're absolutely right. None of them. As far as we know, there is no record of Jesus baptizing anybody. Can you imagine, by the way, what a controversy that could have caused? Well, 
big deal that you were baptized by Cephas or Paul. Me? I was baptized by the man himself. Okay? So he didn't do it. And I wonder if that's one of the reasons why he didn't. It's not because he didn't value baptism. How, we, how do we know that he valued baptism? He was baptized. In fact, he says to John, uh, I want to fulfill all righteousness. And, and John baptizes him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John knew exactly who he was. In fact, John didn't want to do it. He said, you know what? We need to change spots here. He said, no, uh You baptize me. Okay? So, we, so it's interesting here. Paul's point is it doesn't really matter and he uses kind of hyperbole here to emphasize it doesn't really matter who baptized you. It doesn't even matter who, who was baptized by my own hand. He says, it's kind of the idea is here, the subdivision of the church is absurd. It's ridiculous. He's trying to lampoon it a little bit so they'll catch how silly this all is. And yet they're all embroiled in, right in the middle of it. And then he mentions, and I'll read on verse 17 again here. Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would, be made, would not be made void. The idea is here, he is in an, an environment where the, the best thing that can happen to a Greek mind is to get to argue with somebody. Know anybody like that? Okay. I know lots of people like that, that the best thing that ever happens to them is to end up in an argument. The Greeks love to argue over ideas, over philosophies. And Paul could have held his own with them, couldn't he? Read Acts 26, Acts 17, where he goes to Mars Hill in Athens and engages them and, and uh, kind of talks to them about the unseen God that doesn't have a statue. And they're so enthralled with what he has to say, they invite him back. Paul could do that, but the issue is here that truth is not found in philosophy or in the philosophy of men, but in the simple gospel message that he preached. Now, let's go to one, because it's not part of our lesson today. Let's go to 120, and I want somebody to read 120 and then jump down to read verse 24 and 25. Same chapter. Anybody? Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? By the way, again, rhetorical questions. Okay. All right. Eileen, do you mind to jump down to verse 24 and read 24 and 25? Paul is saying, if you're not going into a debate armed with the gospel, then you're taking a pea shooter to a gunfight. It's not about argument. But the essence of all of this, the truth of the truth of the truth, was conveyed by the one who called himself the truth in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if you bypass that simple truth, the rest of it will never add up. Okay? 
He is literally um, saying here, the truth is not found in philosophy, but in the simple gospel message. Paul's message was simple. (laughs) Now, he's got to correct their thinking. Let's jump ahead two chapters to chapter 3. Okay, we're going to go to verse 4. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 4. And we're going to deal here with kind of what his correction of this. Now, uh, in chapter 2, he's going to say, my masterpiece, my, my message, he's going to say, is not exactly a masterpiece of human wisdom. And he kind of hides behind that. He says, you don't need to kind of figure this out philosophically. This is a simple message. And then he's also going to say that he's going to encourage them to have the mind of Christ. But the question is, do they? No. They're controlled by their own um, lusts and desires and even their own kind of infighting here, their own personal preferences. So that's what chapter 2 is all about. And so as we get into chapter 3, he's starting to be corrective in his teaching. Would somebody read from 4 down to 9 in 1 Corinthians 3? Okay, now evidently, if you look across the church in Corinth, there were four different jerseys they were wearing, but there were two that were predominant, the P's and the A's, the Paulites and the Apollosites, okay? Jerry, uh, Jerry and I were talking before class. Uh, my very first church assignment was in a place called Paris, Kentucky. And as I landed there, what I recognized in this beautiful place in the bluegrass of central Kentucky, in this beautiful place in a large church, um, there were, it was just faction after faction after faction after faction. Okay? And remember, they were living in Paris, Kentucky. I wanted to say to him, listen, you guys need to come together. You're all just a bunch of parasites anyway. But (laughs) I wanted to keep my job. I had a child on the way, you know. I did, in fact, though, I would refer back to them as parasites occasionally, and it, that didn't ever go over all that well. But um, <laughs> isn't it interesting that, that the, of all these four factions, there's a lot of, a lot of Paulites, a lot of Apollosites. And so he's going to go after this idea by drawing from a farming metaphor. This is genius. Don't tell me, Paul, you couldn't debate with anybody. This is genius. He goes to a farming metaphor, and he talks about planting and watering and harvesting. Okay? Now, um, uh, this teaching is going to go against the grain of a lot of popular wisdom, even in the church these days, when he uses this metaphor. Okay? Um, uh, Paul is the planter, right? His message has been received. We can go back to Acts 18 and read about it. His message has been received by some in Corinth, and they banded together to start a church. 
And uh, so you could argue that Paul was one of the first church planters, and he planted this little church congregation uh, himself, okay? So he says, I've planted, all right? But Paul's time ends after 18 months, and he's followed by a man named Apollos, who was kind of one from among them. He was a very able teacher whose ministry watered the new believers. Now, if you have any kind of background trying to grow anything, if you put a seed in the ground and then you just leave it and you don't water it, it's probably not anything going to come of it, right? So there was somebody that came behind him, and his name was Apollos, and he waters these new believers. By this, Paul means that Apollos helped the faith and knowledge of the Corinthians to grow by teaching them in greater depth. He discipled them. And there was absolutely no conflict between these two roles. God needs them both. But here's the unpopular thought today. All right? It is God that makes things grow. A farmer can't make a plant grow. That's the work of God. When plant, planting churches, when starting churches, we can do a demographic study of the neighborhood. We can hire talented ministry staff. We can build marvelous buildings in superb locations. We can have ministers who write books and appear on TV. But a church won't grow unless God causes it to grow. It is a spiritual action that only he can do you ever done the uh, take your daughter to work thing i've never any ralph did you do it you were grinning i thought maybe so you know it's really kind of a quaint thought and in fact i'm headed out the door one day this week i got a tie on and Violet catches me going the kids are here this week Violet catches me out going out the door she's our three-year-old and she says Paul, I want to go to work with you. And I mean, all I could do to not take her with me, you know, because I just love being around her. But can I say something to you? If Violet had gone to work with me that day, would the stuff I accomplished, if anything, had anything to do with Violet's presence there? Probably not. In fact, it would have been, don't you think, Louise, kind of a distraction? I'm thinking... A really cute distraction, you're right. But on the other hand, could we have said at the end of a day's work, whether it was much or little, could we have said, look what all Violet did today. That's absurd, isn't it? It's absurd to think that it's by talent alone that churches are grown. If so, Paul could have, he would have been the master of that. If so, then the guy who knew Jesus directly, Peter, that would have been the deal. If so, then Apollos wouldn't have been effective at all because he didn't know Jesus firsthand, right? It has not a whole lot to do with talent. It's got some to do. But according to Paul's metaphor here, if a church is going to grow, it will be because God shows up. It'll be because he makes it grow. When God invites us to join him at work, it doesn't mean he needs our help. <laughs> if I had taken Violet by the hand and said, come on, baby, you're going to work with me, it wouldn't have been because I needed Violet to help me. You get it? Isn't it wonderful that he uses us anyway when all the while he really doesn't need my help at all? You know? Now, 
So what's the purpose of farmers? I had to, had to kind of think about this a little bit. What's the purpose of a farmer? I think the purpose of a farmer is to, um, to do, kind of deal with, the, do their work in order to bring plants to a harvestable state, okay? To, to put all the factors in place that they can do to bring plants to a state where they can be harvested. Wayne? Well, certainly to produce, yeah. But in fact, isn't it interesting when I go to that area of the grocery store or the market, I'm looking for produce, aren't I? Okay? So their job is to, but, but literally, Wayne, the idea here is there's never been a farmer who grew an ear of corn. God grows the ear of corn. But the farmer puts all the factors in place that makes it happen. Okay? That's what greenhouses do, right? In fact, when I was at seminary, one of the things I began to think about, the metaphor I began to think about, is with the largest seminary in the world when I was there, 5,000 seminarians, and all of us broke as turkeys. <laughs> what I began to realize is that we were in a hothouse environment. We were in a place that, that for generations they put the kind of factors in place where we could grow really quickly because we had about three and a half years to get this done. So a farmer puts the factors in place in order to bring, bring plants to a harvestable state. Okay, so if that's the purpose of farmers, what's the field? The field is the church. The field is you and me. All right, now, let's bring this to some conclusion here. The important point that he wants us to remember, along with them, is that we are to follow all of us, follow Christ. He is the ultimate source of unity among us. Now, perhaps in this church, they wanted a church frozen in time. They had been, they, the church had gotten started by Paul, and uh, they were really anxious to uh, just kind of hang on to those days. Because of their tenure, the group had great influence, so resistance to change was kind of dominated their thinking because, you know, Paul actually pulled us into this thing first. Those who, set, who were said to follow Apollos probably were converts who came into the church after Paul left, and they really liked Apollos' preaching style. It was very different. His admirers may have thought that Paul's methods really needed an upgrade. They needed to be kind of spiffed up, right? Uh, the ones who, um, uh, there was a transient po population in all the world that day, and there were those who claimed to follow Peter, follow Cephas, who could have been Christians who learned from that a great, great apostle before they ever came to Corinth. Perhaps they believed that the church in Corinth didn't measure up to the church I used to be in. You've heard this story about the guy who um, was shipwrecked. He's on a really small island, and he's a Christian, so he builds a church. You know, builds a hut, puts a puts a, um, a cross on it, worships there. Well, you know, five years later, they rescue this guy from, from this uh, small island, and they realize there are two, he says, he takes people around, all this stuff he's built, it's kind of a, kind of a he's built a house and built this church, and, and they, he shows him, he says, what is this? And he says, well, you see the cross on top, that's the church. And the guy looks kind of across the way, and there's another hut with a cross on top, and he said, what's that? And you remember, this guy's by himself. He looks across the field, and he says, well, what's that one? He says, well, that's the church I used to go to. Uh, <laughs> it, isn't it true? We, we have a tendency to either really embrace 
where we are, or sometimes we look way too affectionately back. Okay? That the other group said to follow Christ prob- probably claimed some kind of sort of spiritual superiority. But Paul's general conclusion, you can read about this in uh, the first three verses of the chapter we've just been in, 1 Corinthians 3. Paul says they're all a bunch of babies. They're all immature. So my goal is I'm going to start this process that we're going to talk about in the book of Corinthians is to first here deal with what am I doing to promote unity among God's people. Here's my, here's my thought. If you're following Jesus as hard as you can, and if I am, my guess is we're going to be on the same page. If you're following Jesus with all that you are and all that's within you, and I am too, then if your project is in Honduras or at Seaworth, now I love this, by the way. We've got folks in Honduras right now, right? They got, were you there? You look remarkably fresh. That Honduran food, Hondur, it's that Honduran coffee you brought back, isn't it? Yeah. You know, one of the things Louise and I deal with is there are people in this group who have all kinds of interests. Mine might be in Honduras. Yours might be Seaworth. We're all following Jesus. Let's just go together, can we? I'll help you in your project. You help me in mine. And we'll all follow Jesus together. I'm really late. Sorry. (laughs) We'll be in chapter 6 and 7 next week. Bless you. Good to see you.